Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. If you're visiting today, we are finishing a little three-part series on one anothering in the church. Today, one anothering with the loving use of our words. There is a quite extensive outline in the bulletin. It's probably the longest one ever provided in the history of the church. I don't know. I've only been here a year. But everything essential about what I'm going to say is in the outline. The sermon is really presented on behalf of your elders. They have seen the sermon and they have approved it as it were. There's also a one-page summary of uh, overarching principles that guide us in our speech in the foyer. If you'd like the Reader's Digest condensed, condensed version of how your elders view this, there's a longer version called Gossip, the Challenge of Communicating with, it, with Each Other with Honor Before God. The longer version is also in the foyer if you want to do some supplemental reading and study beyond the sermon. So let's look at the text. I'll pray and then we'll jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray for a moment. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you stand back and look at this text and think of it as a picture, what is it that you see? You see people struggling. Paul says the idle need to be admonished. There's the faint-hearted in the picture. They need encouragement. There are weak people in this picture. They need help. Translated, this is a picture of life in the church. And we all struggle to get it right. We fall down. We sin. We sin against each other. It's really hard to serve others and love God well. That's sort of what the picture is screaming, and it's inviting you to do something about it. And what is that? Well, it's Paul's words in verse 15, and that is to love others patiently, tangibly, practically, where you are, in Paul's words, always seeking to do good to one another and everyone. Last week, we saw that it may be necessary in love to do good to them, to speak to them about their sin, or maybe your own sin, because love is always concerned with what sin does to relationships. It's never good for relationships. This week we want to answer this question. 
It may be necessary in love, yes, to talk about someone else's sin to another person. That's the question we want to ask. When is it appropriate for you to talk to another person about somebody else's sin? That's actually the issue that is in the ninth commandment that we used earlier in our confession of faith, the ninth commandment being, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So first, springboarding off of the ninth commandment, Let's look at the gift of the ninth commandment. All God's commandments are gifts. How do you love others with the ninth commandment? In this way at least. You are privileged to love other people by promoting the truth about them and promoting their good name. So these are the two rails we're going to run on through the entire sermon. The truth and someone's good name. Let me explain. Each of the Ten Commandments reveals something about the character of God. For example, in the Ninth Commandment, it tells us that God is a God of truth. God does not lie, although sometimes he may conceal what should not be known. God has a name. It stands for his character. And that name deserves to be honored by every single person all the time and should not be assailed by anyone ever. Got the picture? God is a God of truth. God has a name. Likewise, you are endowed with the gift of the truth. You should speak the truth and not lie. Though you may need, as wisdom and circumstances dictate, to contain truth that should not be known. You endowed with the gift of truth, God has given you a name that stands for your character, and you should seek to live in a way that your name not be assailed. After all, if you follow Jesus, you bear his name, Christian. And this is one of the reasons Paul often tells his readers in his epistles to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. We're bearing the name of Jesus. So, for example... Suppose at work you catch wind that your uh, co-workers are criticizing your performance. Should that concern you? Should that concern you? Absolutely it should. You should be concerned about at least two things. The truth. Is this based on a false impression, or is there truth to the criticism? Is there maybe something I need to change? Is this feedback that ultimately I need for the sake of my job performance? You should be concerned about the truth. Proverbs, 18, uh, Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You should be concerned about the truth of these concerns that are being expressed. Likewise, what should you be concerned about? Your name, your reputation, your good name at work. Your reputation in the organization is critical to your credibility, your future in the organization. Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is to be more desired than your paycheck. That's what Proverbs is saying. 
in the case of a church officer, elders, deacons, pastors, we should even be more concerned for our reputations as Paul unpacks the qualities of a church officer in 1 Timothy 3. He says at least this much, an overseer must be above reproach, respectable, and thought of well by outsiders. I should have a seriously jealous concern for my reputation. I bear the name of Jesus. I fulfill the office of shepherd of Jesus' people. So let's return to our first question. How do you love others with the ninth commandment, seeking to do what is good for them? The answer, love painstakingly seeks to find the balance between, you guessed it, the truth and their good name. The truth? What needs to be known about another person's sin? You're going to be confronted with that reality sooner or later. What's the truth about another person's sin? And we tend to err in one of three ways. We can say what we are not certain is true. That's called slander. We can say things about another person that may or may not be true but shouldn't be known. That is called gossip. Or we can say too little about another person's sin. That's called a cover-up. The truth and that person's good name. What, in fact, needs to be known about another person's sin? We tend to err in one of two ways. Not saying something to the right person when we should. Obviously, conversely, saying something to the wrong person when we should not. Love is concerned to find this balance between what is true and our neighbor's good name. And because this is hard and life is complicated and it's not always clear, we need to plead for wisdom from God. Before we speak to others about another sin, we should talk to God. We should pray. We should see counselors. We should ask the Holy Spirit to give us the mind of Christ. And while we can't cover every conceivable truth and and, uh, name reputation scenario you could conceive of, I want to look at these two in in terms of some simple principles. We'll, We'll run on the first rail first. How do you promote what is true about your neighbor? And then the, we'll conclude the sermon with, how do you protect their good name? Okay? So B, what principles should guide us speaking the truth about our neighbors? Here's the principle. Be slow to speak and move cautiously when speaking to someone regarding another person's sin. That's the general principle. Let's unpack it. It's based on Proverbs 17:9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. He who repeats a matter separates close friends. An example from my life. About five days on campus, I was walking into the football locker room, and one of my teammates walked by me and said, Coach Larry's wife just left him. I took about five more steps. One of my other teammates, who I didn't know, I'm only five days on campus, walked by me, and I repeated those exact words. Coach Larry's wife just left him. I still remember to this day, 45 years later, the scornful look he gave me, and he said nothing. What? possible reasons did I have for repeating that information? I didn't say it with malice. 
I have no reason to be at odds with the coach. I didn't really even know him. But it did not need to be said. I didn't even know it was true. Strictly speaking, it's none of my business. If I needed to know, I could have asked him, which would have been really weird because he didn't know who I was and I really didn't know him. We'd never been introduced. And see, if I won't speak to him about it, why would I speak to anybody else about it? So you would have to call what I did at best foolish, at worst gossip. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go deep into the innermost parts of the body. I must have been feasting at the time on some morsel of being in the know. Won't my fellow teammates accept me? Even though I'm new here, I have information that's special and privileged and I don't remember, I don't know. And regardless of my motives, it's impossible for me to predict the outcome of my words. Impossible. I may have contributed, beloved, to strain relationships, or I may be propagating a falsehood. So Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse man stirs up dissension and gossip separates close friends. This warning, without a, a wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. I should have stopped and asked myself some diagnostic questions, and these are right from Tim Keller's commentary on the book of Proverbs. Here's some of the questions I should have asked myself before I blurted out of my mouth. Is this something I should be talking to that person about directly? In this case, I don't think I should have been talking to Coach Larry. Is this information something the person wouldn't mind sharing? I have no earthly idea. And is this the kind of thing I should want someone sharing about me? I doubt it. At this point in this commentary, Keller shows how motives are critical when it comes to the subject of gossip. He writes, and you can look along with me in the outline, gossip is negative information that may or may not be true, designed to make the speaker and the hearer feel superior to the object of the gossip. It's not necessarily a false report, just an against report, one that undermines the listener's respect and love for the person being spoken about. Pretty good summary of how motives play into this. So let's wrap up this portion. How should love shape the use of our words? Remember, love, their good name. How should love shape the use of our words? Love seeks to preserve and to promote what is true. Proverbs 11:13. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Meaning, I can't make assertions about things I don't know are true. And I have to realize that personal observations about an event may be just impressions. I can't be certain those observations are true in some cases. And secondly, love is slow to convict someone until you hear their side of the story. That's right out of the book of Proverbs 18:17. The one who states his case first seems right until another one comes and examines them. That's why in our law courts we have cross-examinations. <laughs> so the whole story comes out. So you see what we're doing. We love each other with the quality of our words. We're running on two rails, loving them with the truth, and now what should guide, what principle should guide honoring somebody's name? Answer, 
We want wisdom to know when to be slow to speak when others do not need to know and be ready to speak when someone's sin can be harmful to someone else. It's a wisdom issue. So let's take a look at those two things. Number one, be slow to speak when others do not need to know. What's the rationale? It's taken right from the doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian Church in America, the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you uh, call up that document or look at that document and go to the larger catechism on the Ninth Commandment, you will be overwhelmed at how thoughtful our forefathers in the faith teased out everything that's involved in the Ninth Commandment. And I've just summarized a portion of it for you, and that is love esteems our neighbor by desiring their good name, sorrowing for and covering their infirmities, being unwilling to admit a bad report about them, and discouraging tailbearing. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of much more thoughtful theologians and biblical scholars than myself, what we call the Westminster divines. What does it mean in practice? It essentially means I won't believe a bad report about you unless I'm absolutely certain. How would I know? I would talk to you. Meantime, I think the best of you and give you the benefit of the doubt. Example from my life. A number of years ago, uh, a friend, pastor friend of mine said, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? He's out of ministry. He fell into sexual sin. I just couldn't believe it. Not this guy. It just seemed terribly unlikely to me. So I called him. Hey, friend, I heard this. I don't believe it's true. Can you tell me what's going on? I got his, the full rundown on what happened. It wasn't as bad as I thought. He should have stepped out of the ministry, but I got the story. So the point is, beloved, if you witness something, you can't help but form an impression or a perception. It's wise to corroborate your impression with other witnesses, if possible, and then approach the person in question and I would want you to do this with, with me. If you thought you witnessed something that was sketchy, sinful, diff, you know, crazy, I would want you to approach me and say something like this, Mike, I may be wrong, so help me understand. What did I see? Did I witness such and such? Ask me. We sort of do an investigation together. Why is it important to be careful what we say about other people, because words can have a life of their own. When something is verbalized, it, it, it has its own kind of power, and words create ideas that get planted in soil that become very hard to root up. Remember how Hitler fooled all of Germany? He had this big lie. He said it over and over and over and over again until people believed it. But it was a big lie. So when you hear a bad report about another person, take time to lay that report down on a big napkin. Lay that report down. Stop. Lay it down. Don't do what I did and blurt it out. Lay it down and fold over that report the following things. Sorrow. Am I sorrowing over what I heard about this person? Humility, do I believe that could be me but for the grace of God? Fold up redemption, do I want their best, their restoration? Skepticism, I don't want to believe this is true, but I might need to find out. Confront them, 
Is there a reason to confront this person? Oftentimes there is. We can't let things slide. Love doesn't overlook transgressions. Return. Do you need to return the person reporting to you about somebody else, that person to that person? And fear. Does my taking action or inaction threaten anyone's welfare, and should I seek another person to process this and talk with them about it? So far, so good? So let's summarize three aspects of gossip. One, you share with another person what someone has entrusted to you in confidence. Okay? Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but not one who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Second variation of gossip, you reveal the failings of another person without their consent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore don't associate with the simple babbler. And third variation, you speculate about the motives of another person. Proverbs 11:12. whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. So you're approached sometime by another member in the church and they start the conversation with these words. Did you hear about... Immediately, you should go into search and rescue mode. Search and rescue. Search and rescue. Number one, rescue the situation from potential gossip. Do I need to know this? Do they need to know this? And do you think I'm part of the solution? You may genuinely think the person you're talking to is part of the solution. Search and rescue. Search your heart for the attraction of gossip. It's a good book in our library by a pastor in Pennsylvania named Matthew Mitchell. The book is called Resisting Gossip. I read it in preparation for the sermon. And he gives a number of reasons why we like gossip. What's wrong with our hearts? Number one, we believe we can destroy other people with our words. Isn't that sad? I see that in me. He says we often feel better about ourselves because we feel superior. Well, I wouldn't have done that. So we're reveling in someone else's failure. Somehow it props us up. We feel power over people when we have dirt on them. And we feel esteemed because we have privileged information. Did you hear about so-and-so? We're inviting someone into a very private, esoteric group of people who know something that other people don't know. See, in every case, as I look at my heart in every case, I see that I'm allowing, if I believe those things, I am allowing my heart to be hijacked by what is inferior to the love of Jesus. I'm feasting on something that isn't the best thing for my heart, which is the love of Jesus Christ. And when, when the affirmation of Jesus makes you feel secure and adequate, you will refuse these things that seem to make you feel secure and adequate. The love of Jesus never leaves you feeling you, like you have something to prove. Oftentimes, our thirst for gossip does. You see the two rails? How do you love people with words? How do you honor their name or reputation with words? And here's then the last point. We need to be ready to speak when someone else's sin can be harmful to others. What's the rationale? Well, it's patently unloving to allow someone to continue in their sin. Sin is bad for them. 
And it would be unloving to people that could potentially be hurt by this person who is sinning and hurting others. It wouldn't be loving to the people that could be hurt by them. And there are consequences when someone recklessly tarnishes their own reputation. And you see examples of this specifically in the New Testament. I'll get to them in a second. So the question that serves you well here is, will hiding the information I have bring harm to other people? It's kind of like at the airport now and at Amtrak. If you see something, say something. You've got to wrestle with, if I hide this, are other people potentially in danger? And secondly, what is the smallest number of people that need to know this? Here's an example from Holy Scripture. Paul needs to make public the dangerous ministry of a man named Alexander the coppersmith. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. We have to presume this is a public situation, and Paul is concerned for the welfare of the people of God's church that if Alexander the coppersmith is given a forum, he won't teach the truth. Horrible for the people of God. And Paul must warn the people of God. It would be unloving not to do so. It is the loving thing to do so. Alexander tarnished his own reputation by his own conduct and errors. We can only hope that on the basis, let's hope somebody gave him a copy of 2 Timothy and he repented. It is absolutely essential that Paul make that. Likewise, in Galatians 2, we hear about the story with uh, Peter and Barnabas, and they're eating with the Gentiles, and then word comes from James, and they kind of withdraw from the Gentiles and only hang out with the Jews, and by their conduct, they're denying the gospel, that the gospel breaks down these barriers. Paul has to publicly rebuke Peter, one of the apostles. He has to publicly rebuke him for this. His behavior is public. It is saying the wrong thing. It would be unloving for Paul not to have done so, unloving to the people affected for Paul not to do so. One other example, if you're reading in 1 Timothy, Paul mentions the shipwrecked faith of Hymenaeus and Alexander. These names are forever in the word of God for shipwrecked faith. What do you do with that when you read that? Well, you know, if those guys had hurt you, you may be tempted to gloat. Good. What should we do with that kind of information? Scorn? Judge them? How about look to Jesus mourning the self-destruction of a human being? Pray for their redemption and say, God, the only reason that is not me is what? The only reason you haven't shipwrecked your faith is what? the preserving grace of God. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. Nothing can snatch them out of his hand. When you hear bad reports about another person, let these warnings in the word of God drive you to Jesus. And in his presence, thank him for the glory of his obedience. He never spoke a sinful word and the billions that he used. Thank Jesus for the purity of his heart. He was never motivated by malice. Thank Jesus for the steadfastness of his character in the face of temptation so he could offer himself a blameless sacrifice 
in your place for your salvation. Thank Jesus for the sheer power of his words. One word and the ocean stops. One word, the demons flee. One word, a sick body is instantly healthy. Thank Jesus for responding to your cry for, your cry for cleansing, speaking of you the word of the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That word secures your eternal presence with God in glory. The word of Jesus pronouncing forgiveness. That's the use of the Word of God for the salvation of God's people. Thank Jesus that He doesn't tell everyone the sordid truth about your heart. Should we go into the cell phone and start reading all the texts? <laughs> Jesus doesn't tell everybody what you're like. Thank Him. How wretched I am is ultimately my secret with him. My wife knows most of it too. Thank Jesus for keeping you from shipwreck. Thank Jesus for giving you his name. He gives you a reputation. He gives you the name Christian. And as his father looks at your name, He's absolutely and utterly and eternally pleased because he sees the glory of his Son. He sees, he sees Christ when he sees you if you belong to him. What a gift. And thank Jesus for putting in your heart a fear of sinning with your words. I'm convinced the great majority of my sin in my life is out of my mouth. Absolutely, without a doubt. And when you finish thanking him, Commit to a life of holy gossip. Oh, there's a good kind of gossip, and it goes like this. Did you hear about Jesus? Do you know what Jesus has done for sinners? Did you hear what the Son of God will do for you when you call on his name? Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, words are so powerful. Thank you for declaring us pure in your sight through the word of the cross. And we can't think of any greater motivation to exercise extreme care over our own words and their truthfulness, over our own reputations, and extreme painstaking care loving each other with the truth and for their good name. Forgive us where we've fallen. Heal us where we're broken. Mature us for the glory of the one whose name is above all names, the true God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.